welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Somaru. Hey everybody, this week I am joined by Zena Sarif, and she is CEO of Yendu. So obsessed with the possibility to cure cancer in her lifetime, Zena spent a decade in oncology research. Following a career in clinical research, most notably at AstraZeneca, she decided it was time to tackle the biggest blocker for medical innovation, clinical trial timelines, and founded Yendu. So Yendu is a clinical trial market network. It connects all stakeholders with the goal to break silos and streamline clinical operations. And their mission is to is speeding medical innovation towards a disease-free world. So Zena, welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, James, for inviting me to be here. It's a pleasure. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Whereabouts are you speaking to us from today? From Berlin, Germany. Saying hi from Germany. Excellent. Excellent. I'm not sure we've had many guests from Berlin in Germany, but uh, yeah, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Um, so Zina, listen, the way that we start these podcasts, obviously, is for you to tell your story. Now, you've obviously got um, a an interesting career, moved into entrepreneurship. I've seen you lots on LinkedIn. You're, you're nice and loud out there in the content world. So <laughs> I've actually got a very good idea of what you're up to and what your challenges are and what you're looking for in the world. So I feel like <laughs> I know you at this point, which is one of the, one of the values of content, I think. Um, but yeah, it'd be great. It'd be great for you to tell us and, and all our listeners uh, a bit about your story. Thank you. It, it's always interesting because when, when, when people reach out to me on LinkedIn and then we will have our first uh, Zoom call, it's always intimidating because I feel like they know more about me yeah. and I know nothing about them. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm always like, I f- okay, could you could you please just start introducing yourself? So I just like to <laughs> have a sort of equilibrium and know a bit more. Uh, yes, to me, I, I was born and I grew up in Morocco. Um, moved to Germany 15 years ago as a first immigrant, um, to study chemistry. As you mentioned before, I, I'm obsessed with the idea of curing cancer. And the reason why growing up in Morocco is, um, I grew up in the capital Rabat. And back then we used to have two oncology centers in the country. Once, uh, once in the north of the country and once in the, uh, in the capital where I used to live. And I still remember the first time my uncle came to visit us and, um, and he would go to the hospital and he came back and he, he stayed with us for six months. And you could clearly see how within six months he went, like his health deteriorated from a mm-hmm. healthy, fit person to, being released to palliative care and dying a few months later. And I couldn't really understand. For me, it was the first time I got uh, in the proximity of cancer mm. and realizing on the one hand that most people cannot afford uh, early diagnostics uh, in the country. So it's most of the time when it's stage four metastatic and there is not much you can do. And because a lot of people, most Moroccans, they cannot afford stays in the hospital. So they always stayed with us. So my uncle was the first person who stayed at our place. And after him, there were many to come. To me, it was clear that just like understanding that becoming a doctor, if you grew up in a low income countries, your parents want you to have a career that is secure and ensure your financial security. And for them is you either go to engineering school or to medical school. And so the idea was always, oh, you got to become a doctor. And then me realizing, I, I truly still remember those conversations that doctors can't really save patients if there is no drugs out there to save them. And me telling my mom, oh, I want to become a scientist and we will find cure. But then you just think about it naively and my parents also think, oh, I don't know like dreams of tiny children. Um, it, it stayed with me, honestly. And, and I don't know why when I moved to university and I came to Germany, I studied chemistry. I have been good at many, like I have been really good at physical chemistry and analytical chemistry, but I 
decided to study inorganic chemistry and drug design for chemotherapies. And people will always say to me, why, why are you taking the hard path in, mm-hmm. in, in doing so? And to me, yeah. it was like, you, you just want to study and do something that's meaningful for the world. So yeah, I spent 10 years literally in drug discovery, first chemotherapies development, then trying to lower the side effects. You know, people like chemo, chemotherapies have heavy side effects that in, impact patients' quality of life. And it was always, how can we make them more precise that actually they don't affect healthy cells in patients? And we have this new wave of CRISPR-Cas9 and personalized medicine. So I decided to study biology in addition to chemistry, have been working on using CRISPR-Cas9 technologies and to personalize therapies in the space for years. And till one day I came across this one article, how it takes 12 years and it costs around 1 billion to deliver therapeutic to two patients. And to me, it was, this is crazy because if I spent three to four years doing preclinical research, testing toxicity of those therapeutics, testing them in animals, and it takes another 12 years to deliver the drug to the patients. So it's accessible to everyone. And if you think about it, it means that every therapy we have today in the market is a technology from the past. And the other thing is because it costs around a billion, the way the drug we invest in, it's not the drug that has the highest potential to save lives, to in, to improve the quality of life of patients, but it's the drug where I know for sure I have a high pro- pro- probability of it getting approved and to the market. And we can see it because 60% of therapeutics in clinical trials today get approved. And it shows how incremental innovations we do. Like today we have clinical trials in drug updates. We no longer do drug innovation. We literally do drug updates. You you tweak a bit, you improve the receptor, you improve the affinity of the drug. And by that, you know, for sure it's going to be approved. And the question becomes only how long it's, who, who is the first in the market, basically. So for me, it was like, okay, it doesn't make any sense to stay in drug discovery. We, there's a lot of things happening. We will be... We are moving towards deep, deep bio where algorithms actually give us great predictions in terms of what other drugs we have to invest in. And the huge blocker will be clinical trials. And I decided to, to leave academia and drug discovery and move to clinical trials. And honestly, it was for me to answer the question, why it takes 12 years? Why it costs that much? And the ambition was if we can reduce, shorten the timeline, down to seven years, we literally could halfen the cycle of innovation. If we can reduce the costs down to max 300 million, if we can make every research institute being able to afford any clinical trials and becoming pharmaceutical companies, and then we have more competition in the market, everyone wins, and especially patients. I truly believe that the reason why we haven't been able to cure diseases today is time. Uh, it's clinical trials. If we go faster, we test more, and we will definitely have a progress at a scale we haven't seen today. And yeah, so I moved. I have been working at AstraZeneca. And like my career in clinical trials started in the peak of the pandemic. It was the moment when everyone understood how important are clinical trials to save patients' life. We saw this with the vaccine. And uh, working on that, I realized that um, now we have all those technology clinical solutions out there, literally a boom. Uh, one of the biggest issue within the pandemic was, because like clinical trial is testing drugs in patients. How, how a drug gets approved is basically you have access to all those data based on patient test drug, you take all those laboratory results, you assess the data, and then you you compare to a control group. And then based on those data, you can show if your drug is efficient and uh, safe. Pharmaceutical companies couldn't access those data because those data are in hospitals and often on paper. So most technologies in the space were all around 
building digital solutions that enable centralized data entry, that hospital staff enter the data in softwares and enabling pharmaceutical companies oversight over those data. And we see it like imaging software, just like, okay, so we can add scans. And like everything was in the space. And to me, it was, it is definitely needed, but all technologies built today are built to fit within the traditional system that already existed. So we are not affecting the timeline in any ways. What we are doing for sure is increasing the costs because paper is still cheaper than software. (laughs) And at the same time, my job was to deliver clinical trials to clinics. Because like, I mean, a clinical trial literally starts at clinics because the, the only person who can prescribe a clinical trial as a therapy line to patients are doctors not pharmaceutical companies. So you need clinics to run clinical trials and to recruit patients for the clinical trial. My my role was once we have the go to run a clinical trial to the, to allocate the clinical trial to clinics and then help them start the clinical trial. And this process takes 18 to 24 months. And it has nothing to do with safety uh, of patients. It has nothing to do with a regulatory uh, hurdles we have. It's clear process inefficiency. And if you add this across phase one, phase two, phase three, you end up with four and a half to five years of the total of 12 years are spent in the white spaces between the phases of clinical trials. And I'm like, we could literally improve the process of clinical trials delivery to clinics without changing anything else in the system and save four years. Why is no one working on it? Mm. And I decided to quit my job and work on it. That's the long story. (laughs) Amazing. That's an incredibly good run through actually of the value of clinical trial innovation the way that you've just talked us all through that you've explained the problem incredibly well 12 years and a billion to get new drugs to patients what was actually really interesting was when you said we don't do drug i think you said drug discovery or drug innovation anymore we do drug updates that's really interesting you also pointed at in a problem with incentives as well, which is that the drugs of highest priority of approval will be the ones that are focused on. And we can see that because of the volume that do get approved and therefore the incentives aren't aligned to impact. I think this is just an interesting thing just to chat about here, because I think, you know, on on this podcast, there'll be a lot of people that understand health tech and, and perhaps less so pharma, but to understand pharma i think is to unlock a heck of a lot of innovation in the health tech system because frankly it's where the money is and frankly there's a lot that can be done if we can align incentives of pharma and so it's interesting also to me how you linked uh essentially linked a pharma company to a hospital through clinical trials which is that essentially there's all this valuable data locked up in hospitals in on paper and in hospitals and it's just inaccessible but it's of extreme value to finding out what the most important drugs are although algorithm is doing a lot of that but crucially the clinical trials that will enable those to get to market and so there's a there's a lot here to talk about in terms of the problem um and i guess where i want to start is this whole incentives thing about drug updates, drug discovery, and the, the drugs of ha- highest probability. You've worked at AstraZeneca. You've worked in pharma. You're now doing this more broadly. I mean, how do we change that? Is that changeable? Is that changeable through policy? Is that changeable through any other incentives? Where, where, does, the, where, where does it have yeah. to change? Because ultimately, I'm thinking, you know, we can patch this and we can, we can get incredibly driven people like yourself who really care about this stuff. And, and you can focus on trying to make that change further downstream. But ultimately, I'm just interested in your opinion here. Like, is that, yes. is that solvable as a, as a real upstream problem? Because that would solve a lot, right? 
Yes, a hundred percent. Uh, on the one hand, uh, I truly believe if I have a research budget of hundred billions mm. per year, this is like across the whole global industry. Um, there are only few drugs I can invest in. H- how can we get more? How can we increase the research and development productivity of those companies? We can do so by optimizing the system. And, and it's really interesting because working at pharma, I have seen they want, they want to be faster. They yeah. suffer from, because there is an, there is the incentive that you have 20 years patents to make money after you, after, uh, from you, from the drug you, uh, you developed. Within those 20 years is the clinical trial timeline. So as long, just like 12 years means you only have an eight years window, just like for sales, like as a sales opportunity. There is this huge need and want to accelerate clinical trials. The only way we can do it is through use of technology. The issue we had at Pharma till now is first, um, most people working at Pharma are scientists like me. We are not, I mean, like your whole career path teaches you to be an expert idiot that doesn't <laughs> think, you know, there is no ex- extroverted thinking. You think mm. you need to be an ext, an, you, you know, an expert. And by that, it's really hard. And you believe in data. There is no experimentation. It has to be sure. And you add to it the burden of having like a phase three clinical trial. The ones that was running, like it's like 300 millions, like the burden of 300 millions and you have to make it happen. And of course you don't want to do any mistakes. Um, how, how can you make sure you are not making any mistakes? It's just like doing it the way it has been done during the last, uh, 50, 60 years. And, and technologists, engineers, it's hard for, for an engineer to enter the market because you need to understand the industry. But to be part of the industry, you need a 10 years path to get in and truly understand it. So it has always been this separation of the technocrats on the one side and life science, uh, like the worker on the other side. And, and by that, it was, it's, it's one of those industries that has had hard time being disrupted by technology. I mean, like not even, I mean, I, I, it's like the word disrupted really to profit from technology to improve. Literally, I sat in meetings and you try, you try new technologies and the, the outcome is zero. During the pandemic, there was this rise of digital health solutions. Um, pharmaceutical companies invested tons of money in those digital solutions and most of them proved to be not worth the money invested, which led again to the skepticism towards, uh, toward health solutions. So to me, can we change the incentives? On the one hand, is to truly understand the pain point of your customer. And do we want to invest in more drugs? Is this, is this, if this is my mission, then how can I enable pharmaceutical companies to accelerate clinical trials to get the drug faster to the market so they can, so that there is more incentive for innovation? Yeah. Now we can take more risk because you have more time to to make money out of your blockbusters. And, um, so this is on, on the one, on the one hand. The other thing is, um, we have never thought about building an infrastructure for biotech companies. So biotech companies today, a, a great example is the collaboration between BioNTech and Pfizer. You have a, you have a biotech company that has been inve- investing in a technology for a decade at least. They run a phase one trial and then you can't afford running a phase two or phase three trial. You have to collaborate with a big pharmaceutical company, partner or gain acquired because th- this is literally the finish line. And no one, just there is not much work in how can we actually enable newcomers because they are bold. So for them, the incentives is I want my drug to be the best because this is the only way I can be successful in the market. But for them, there are no solutions. And so what I say is like, we need to build this clinical research infrastructure to enable biotech companies to, to play the clinical trial game. Um, that's only pharma can play today. 
And um, yeah, like, and, and the other thing about updates, it's, it's ridiculous that for that regulations require the same clinical trial regulatory requirements for drug updates as for new, for new therapeutics. I truly believe if we just change, like if, I don't know, if we just change a type of receptor, if we just change the, we improve the affinity, we need, we need a different clinical trial system to prove because like, I mean, why would, why would we have to run a phase one or phase two clinical trial to prove that the drug is safe? We, we already determined the safety profile. It, it, there must be another way. And I, I, I believe in the future it will be definitely. It's just a matter of time. I think that's really interesting. I think what you're saying is, if I've understood this correctly, is that because of the inefficiencies of the R&D and clinical trials process, that R&D budget has to go to the drugs that have the highest probability of approval. And that by creating mm. more efficiencies in that entire process, given the sums of money involved here, that marginal gains actually produces, well, quite a lot in real terms. I think what you're saying is that by improving that efficiency, those companies are then more likely to spread their bets further than that beyond the drugs necessarily just of highest approval. They're more likely to take a punt on the ones of highest impact because actually they're going to have a greater risk appetite because of the fact that relatively speaking, they have more resource, which I think is, that's fascinating because that it's funny that I'm sure there's people listening who might be judging pharma companies for that. And I think, you know, everyone's entitled yes. to their opinion. I think that said though, you know, imagine if, imagine if you as an individual had 10 grand to invest, would you, would you invest in what was likely to give you the highest return or would you invest in what's likely to give you highest impact, even though it might fail and deliver no impact? So do you want the guaranteed return that delivers some impact or do you want the, in, the risk that might deliver no impact or loads? Now that's a hard decision. And I think morality yes. can be applied to an individual. I think quite easily you can judge an individual and their morality a lot easier than perhaps I was actually having this conversation a while ago with some of my family that I think, and this is dodgy territory I'm on now, but like I'm with, I'm with friends I feel, but I think there's an expectation of individuals yeah. to apply m morality sometimes, or sorry, there's not an expectation. Individuals sometimes uh, express or expect morality from an organization, the size yeah. of a pharma company. And they will, they will yeah. sort of project human values onto decisions made by an entity as large as a pharma company that has yeah. tens of thousands of employees, hundreds of thousands of employees. And I think ultimately they're just going to make the decision for what's profitable for their shareholders, because that's just how companies are run. Yeah. And that is capitalism. And I think to expect to expect morality and the nuance that comes along with that is very difficult. And so I think there's a pragma pragmatism and a practicality with going, mm. okay, well, if their incentive is money and it's currently yeah. incredibly high risk to optimize for impact, well, how do we de-risk that? Well, actually, let's make the system incredibly efficient so that they're almost guaranteed yeah. those drug updates. And we can do that by helping with clinical trial efficiency. And we can also do that by setting up a different system yeah. to just make those drug updates incredibly simple and much easier because we know the yeah. drug is safe and therefore it doesn't need that. Then we give them a lot more money to play with. Then, like any yeah. individual's portfolio, I suppose, at the high net worth level or ultra high net worth level, they will, of course, throw more money into a high risk asset class. They might become an LP into exactly. a VC fund. They might do all sorts yes. of weird and wonderful stuff. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting. And actually, that's helped me clarify that in my mind, I think, a little bit. Um, and I might have a lot of blind spots there. But the other, but the other, the other thing that you talked about was was infrastructure as well. Explain that point to me again, a bit more, perhaps. Yes, you know when we talk about clinical trials, and, it, and this is something that, like we think we always think about the clinical trial provider. The clinical trial mm. provider is often pharmaceutical company or biotech company. But like, if you have a clinical trial, it's it's a huge 
non-digitalized platform. It's really just like a market. You have the clinical trial provider. This is this institutions who has this therapy, and then they make the design of the clinical trial. And then they, they are required by regulatories to have the oversight and ensure patient safety and collect the right data and so on. You have facilities. Facilities are the clinics where where patients is welcomed, where the treatments happen, where the data capture happen happens. You have and drug logistics. The companies that develop the drug that ship it to all those clinics around the globe. You have all clinical solutions. Those are software companies that helps you capture all those data. You have laboratories. Like if if you have a as an example, if you have a cancer uh, a clinical trial in in cancer, usually most drugs have tons of side effects. Then you are not only working with the women cancer clinic where the patient is received and where all the treatments happen. You are working also with radiology where we do all the CTs to monitor tumor progress. We work with pathology to assess the type of tumors. We work with cardiologists to, to monitor side effects of telemologists. It's just like, it's a huge network mm. of people that work together and institutions that work together. And so it requires a lot of coordination between people within, like imagine within pharma, you have a clinical trial. It's multinational in at least 20 countries. So you have 20 teams working on the same clinical trial. In those 20 teams, every single team coordinate the communication with all those facilities in the country. And it's a huge network of coordination. And it's full of silos. Like the way today's, the tr- like today's way of coordinating a clinical operation, a clinical trial is phone calls, emails, Excel sheets and PowerPoint presentations. That, that we have this huge, that the clinical operation is really complex. Uh, even though the clinical trial is owned by biotech or pharmaceutical companies, we have all those organizations around that actually are required to work together. And today we have this huge complex organization that operates offline and and every individual involved plays a single game player. And what you end up with is we have collaboration with huge stakeholder isolation because every, everyone is a tiny island. And, and with that, we have all the efficiencies we, we gathered over the years. And so to me, honestly, when I started, it was more why why we have two clinical trial teams, like why we have two clinical trials happening in the same clinic and the two teams do not know about each other, which means we have the same processes happening twice in parallel. And then you add to it how many are, how many processes are happening asynchronously but are so identical and you multiply this in the thousands over the years and the costs that requires. And um, so, yeah, so this is, and to me it was like, this, we, we have this infrastructure that is offline and because it's offline, no one ever really bothered about mapping this infrastructure and making uh, making everyone in clinical trial team, like just like literally giving them the overview about what's happening. We generated all those inefficiencies that take us those 12 years. Cause like, honestly, for me, it was, I have this amazing drug. It is like literally AstraZeneca's current portfolio for breast cancer such such a delight to work on it. And th- there's this new drug that's that's supposed to replace chemotherapy uh for patient for patients in triple negative breast cancer patients. And triple negative breast cancer patients, if they are stage four, usually you have eleven point five months to live. 
That's the stats for them. And we call them triple negative because they are negative to all biomarkers we know that we can target with current drugs that are in the market. I, we have phase one data, amazing data, and it took us more than one year to organize the delivery of the start of the clinical trial so patients can have access to this, to this clinical trial and to this therapy. Those are patients that are literally desperate for a therapy that phase one trials showed that 37% of those patients in phase one have been like a huge benefit, really amazing data where, I mean, it has been presented in the ASCO in different cancer oncology conferences and the, whole, the medical community celebrating the results as a breakthrough. And then we have this breakthrough in our hands and we struggle to deliver it to patients in need. And um, you just get exposed to to those inefficiencies and truly understanding what it means for the patient life. And to me, it was you. You can, I mean, what's I mean? I can't see myself playing the traditional game long term and climb the career ladder, knowing that it's actually damaging everyone. If you think about it, 70% of the global death rate is from non-communicative diseases. And non-communicative diseases are diseases that are not, not aging related and not infection related. You know, just like, just like if you think about it, 70%, those are around 50 million people per year. In 20 years, a billion people die of diseases that actually we could cure mm. but definitely not if it takes us that long to develop drugs and to deliver those, those drugs to the patients and we have the wrong incentives so for me it was okay all i care about and they used to tell my boss all i care about if i have a breakthrough innovation in my hand it's our ethical responsibility to deliver it to patients as soon as possible and um Pharma want that because if you have a breakthrough innovation, you know it's going to make you tons of money. You want to deliver it as soon as possible to patients. And there is just a lack of infrastructure that's enabled the speed. And when I started, everyone is like, never mention the word speed because it's seen as a bad thing. People, it's, people will distress you if you talk about speed. Uh, because speed means you are willing to risk patient safety and break the regulatory rules to get to your means. I'm like, <laughs> no, we need speed. It's our ethical responsibility. It's like we have to be advocates for speed if we truly want to impact the world and just like really improve health at a global scale. Um, yeah, so for me, it was the way we look at clinical trial teams, we only look within the operation. Can we enable the team? And for me, the team is everyone involved, no matter in which organization they work, to work together. And without phone calls, without emails, I mean, you know, the way we have all those collaboration tools, you know, if you, if you have this dashboard and you work with everyone, you don't even have to tell someone, what are you doing? You go there. I don't know, like if you use Figma or Miro board or sure. whatever, you know, you know what the rest of your team is doing. Yeah. Uh, we hire people and we let them spend the whole day sending emails, asking for follow-up questions while they could just spend this time doing the work instead of talking about the work that needs to be done. 70% of the time of every single employee in clinical research is looking at Excel sheets, tracking Excel sheets, writing emails, waiting for a reply, uh, picking up the phone call. And that's literally the reason why we have the progress we have today in health. Yeah. And yeah, so, and, and this is like, so for me, it was like, we need, we need to rethink the way we, those, organi this, those organizations collaborate. And of course here, it's, imp it's really hard for, for, for someone coming from the technology space to build something in the clinical research space because how would you know how the process is? How would you know 
other regulations around it. How would you know? Yeah. And, um, but I'm really excited. I feel our generation, even though we are coming from the science space, we, we are just, we, we grew up with technology. So, so it's, you, we become all technology native. So if something is inefficient, even at work, you realize, oh, we, we can do this differently. Why is does why does this doesn't work like why do I have to you know it's like we always make why can, oh this could be like Uber or this could be like Spotify or this could be like Amazon why it's not working <laughs> and um, yeah so and and that's what I mean so the, the biggest issue we have today is infrastructure so we know that clinical trials starts at clinics clinical trials happens happen at clinics um, we the everyone talks about there is a huge issue around patient recruitment that the biggest bottleneck in clinical trials is patient recruitment because only 8% of patients across the globe are part of clinical trials. Therefore, we have to invest in patient recruitment. And I'm like, we don't have a patient recruitment problem because only 3% of doctors are part of clinical trials. Actually, we have a good quota uh, taken into consideration that uh, we, we are not uh, really raising awareness around clinical trials at, at clinic sites. So that's why, so for me is we really have to improve the experience between the coordination between the three, the pharma and clinics to, to really be able to accelerate clinical trials delivery. It's very clear just how much you care about this problem. I mean, it, your ability to sell the vi- the vision and and what you want to achieve is incredible. I mean, second to none, I, I'd argue. Um, and this is something that you clearly care about. I think that's such a wonderful foundation for starting a company in an area that is not easy. Plenty of competitors. Plenty of difficult regulations, as you've said, difficulties left, right and centre to actually getting this done because of, you know, how it's always been in inverted commas, you know, like it, it's, yes. there's, there's a lot, there's a lot that you're going up against innovating in a, in a, you know, space that hasn't had or seen much in the way of innovation as we would expect to your point about being technology natives. And so I'm interested now in in Yendu and the company that you've built or are building. Um, and yeah, I, where whereabouts are you with it? What what is it? What's the product? How does it help all these problems that you've talked about? Um, and talk to me yes. about some of your your early experiences in uh, in in this new entrepreneurship journey. Yeah, so Yendu is a clinical operation tool that enable collaboration bet- between pharmaceutical companies, uh, clinics, and clinicians to accelerate clinical de- trials delivery to clinics so patients can receive new drugs as soon as possible. The goal is to shorten the clinical trial delivery timeline. We call it clinical trial startup phase from 18 months to six months. Within the next two years, this is the goal we are working on. And, um, yeah, as I mentioned for us, like, so what we do, like, as mentioned, we, we have stakeholder isolations. There is no cross stakeholder collaboration. And, um, with Yendu, we change this. We are, we are totally obsessed about redefining what our clinical trial team means and build a collaboration tools that enable cross-organizational collaboration. So how can we get people who work in different institutions to work together? Uh, today, if there is a clinical trial, so like, for example, at Yendu, uh, what is possible, like pharmaceutical company can literally, within a few clicks, it won't take them even more than five minutes, add a clinical, their clinical trial to the platform mm. and share it with all key opinion leaders and oncology experts across the globe. We enable physicians to give feedback to, to the clinical trial in, in real time. Uh, if you are the medical lead of a clinical trial, you can assess all feedback and directly connect with, with the, with the oncologists and request more information or, uh, like a video call to, 
to further assess how this can help you to improve the clinical trial protocol. We enable, um, so like also what can be done, like you have clinical research associates at pharma that can access all essential documents needed for regulatory at clinic level and just download them with one click. We enable, like if you are, if you are the clinical lead of the clinical trial, you have oversight and reporting about everything. You can export all data. But what we also do is, and something that was very important to me is building a solution that really decrease the administrative burden around clinical trials for clinics too. Mm. So clinics, they, whenever they are interested in being part of a clinical trial, they have to submit the same documents again and again. Most of them are in PDF. Now they all have access to their own profile and then they have access to data insights and then they can just, so every personal in within the clinic they have their own profile. They, they can manage their own data. Clinic directors, they have access to the whole clinical trial portfolio of different departments. Sometimes we talk to clinic direct directors and you know, most, most hospitals, they actually surviving from grants and research money. And whenever they are planning the next quarter, they have to call every single department asking what are the clinical trials that are upcoming. No, they don't need to do this. They have their own. Uh, profile, they go there and they see all clinical trials activities happening across departments in the hospital. So, so that's, that's when the, what you can do is today, what we do is just like trying to change the way of work of without really disrupting the dynamic those stakeholders have with each other. So just like, can we map the infrastructure and the structure of those stakeholders to display the reality? even though, and at the same time, innovating on the tools used to get access to the same information. It's, an, it's a simple concept, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it's sort of, it's almost <laughs> like, it's almost like, why doesn't, why doesn't it exist on mass currently? And it looks very familiar, I think, you know, in, in the way that People of our generation, I suppose, that are on quite a lot of tech platforms like yes. Slack or Figma or Miro or all these different things, like you, yeah. you, you have this expectation of how things look and feel that you're already, yes. you know, Apple and Google and, and Facebook have trained us incredibly well on certain interfaces, haven't they? And like, we just, we just know yes. how to use certain things. And so it fits yeah. into that because looking at it on your website now and just looking at the screenshots and things like that, like, there's a real familiarity to it, a real simplicity to it. And I can see your point of like, yes. it's, it, it, it makes a lot of sense, like addressing this, you know, cross-site collaboration or, or addressing all these different sites, but just getting people onto the same platform. Like even earlier today, like you'll relate to this in terms of running a, a new business, like, you know, all of a sudden you're an accountant overnight and you have to do a lot of accounting and all that sort of stuff and having to go on zero and, and like linking our accountants and me and people and putting people as expenses yes. and this and that, the other, all of a sudden, like it, thinking how that would be possible without a platform like zero is now unthinkable. But I suppose that's where pharma yeah. is currently. It's like, you've got one, per, you've got all these people yeah. that have to submit expenses. They're probably sending receipts in by the, in, in, in an envelope oh via goodness. the post to a human. The human is looking at it and then just yeah. ticking a box on a piece of paper. The piece of paper is then scanned into a computer. Yeah. Like, and then Zero comes along yeah. and then just automates the whole lot. And, you know, other accountancy platforms are available, I'm sure. <laughs> like, yes. You know what I mean, right? This has that yeah. feel to it of like, yeah, there's the things that you need that yeah. brings everybody together. And seemingly, I imagine yes. when this stuff is ubiquitously everywhere and, and it would be like, how did yeah. we exist without this stuff, you know? Yeah. The, the challenges are more around uh, building a, building a, a platform and it's actually really interesting in two weeks the screens are will be looking completely different <laughs> um we have been we have been doing a lot of work and i'm very excited about what's what's coming up soon nice um like the biggest challenge is really that you have different stakeholders with different incentives mm. like you with your accountant you have the same incentives mm. And which is to keep me out of jail. <laughs> yes. Ex you know, exactly. That's, yeah, that's what I, 
my account enemy, we agree on this too. Uh, yeah. And, and like here you have to understand. So talking about morality, why? So pharmaceutical companies use, use, use clinics and as service providers for patients recruitment. Mm. They're in clinical trials and we obviously have a huge problem that over a third of those clinics recruit zero patients. We mm. spend millions to activate those clinics on like two digit millions and end up with zero output. And then you have, you have to close those clinics, which is another budget to it. And, uh, and all we do is how can we really help? Like all I care about is making amazing therapeutic reach patients as soon as possible. So I need we need to understand the incentives. It's literally like I, I wake up every morning and then I go to the gym and sometimes I'm like running on the treadmill and thinking, what do they want? What do they want? It's like <laughs> the whole time, the whole time, how can I, what, how can I build a, build a platform that mm. actually responds to the incentives of different parties? And for that, you have to talk to, to oncologists and understand why you pick this clinical trial, why you end up recruiting zero patients in this clinical trial, what needs to be done differently. And it's like, how can you engage those people to perform? Because they don't have to perform. And, you know, it's like, how can we tackle those challenges as, as early as possible? It's like, so it's not only process innovation in a sense. We yeah. want to streamline the process and enable collaboration how can we make the parties collaborating align on incentives? Mm. And, and so that's, that's really where the challenge is because pharmaceutical companies suffer greatly from low performance. And for them, low performance is it takes too long to recruit patients. And it's sometimes it's a really heartbreaking knowing that this is a, it, it's, Literally, sometimes you have a highly innovative drug, and I cannot understand why we do why we have issues with recruitment, but we do have them, and it's because politics, personal agendas. So a lot of a lot of work what we do is really depicting those personal agendas, or why would this oncologist not refer their patients to a clinical trial? And understand there is a price tag. And now again, morality. It's actually funny because we expect morality from pharma. Pharma expects morality from physicians. Mm. And they're like, we have this amazing drug. We expect you knowing the data that you would recommend your patient to this clinical trial. But the physician says, if I recommend this patient to the clinical trial, my income is gone because I am not part of this clinical trial. So what, mm. you know, and then... And, and that's truly, literally the challenge is not, it's more aligning incentives to really understand. Yeah. Like we are trying to get people to work together that actually dislike working together and they do it just because they have to. And that's how everyone profits from each other. It's not, it has never been a relationship based on we like each other. We're just like, we got to work together because that's how everyone gets what they want. And, um, yeah. I think I think what's interesting there is um I think you very neatly explained there that I mean <laughs> this is not just a tech platform is it this is not what a business no. in this sphere is built on a business in this sphere is built on an incredibly deep understanding of everybody involved what their incentives are and appreciating yeah. that in order to get this solution to market and executing incredibly well. It's as much about behavior change and just understanding different people and how they work together. And just that, that transformation adoption piece as much as anything else. In fact, probably more so because I'm sure plenty of platforms have come and gone and I'm sure you know who they are um that have tried yes. to do something similar but it seems that the the success of this is really hung on something much deeper and greater which is that appreciation and understanding and i suppose and the ability yes. to find what that what that middle ground is and to and to create a system in which your platform sits where everybody is aligned yes. eventually um yeah. not not an easy yeah. not an easy task yeah I, I truly, like, the, I would say the leverage we have 
compares to others who, who came before us and maybe many who will come after us is that um, while during my time at Pharma, I have been a huge advocate for clinic centricity mm. that we have to the end. And um, there were, there were, back then there were a lot of people who would say like, mm, you, you can, you can't be, uh, you know, it's usually we, we don't, we don't talk about those who you just, okay, you could risk your job. You could be, I mean, yeah. And I have always been advocate for that because I truly believe, I mean, we need them because, I mean, if you think about it, if I am a cancer patient and my, phys- my oncologist tells me you have, usually you are informed about the diagnosis and which is like, you are in shock and your oncologist will be like, okay, that's how we will start the therapy. And you will do whatever they tell you. It's never that you, there are patients go to the, you know, that you receive the diagnosis and you're like, yes, but I have. I have seen this ad about this clinical trial. Do you think yeah. I should do this therapy? I'm like, no, I have no idea. You are, you are the oncologist. I, I just, I want to live. That's all what I want. And then I will do whatever you tell me to ensure. Yeah. And, and it's also like a huge responsibility to make therapy choice on the patient's shoulders. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't want, I don't want my therapy to fail and then be the one responsible because I choose the wrong therapy. And then, you know, being gone and then my, it's like, and the suffering around you. So for me, it was always clear. I feel like a lot of digital health solutions try to replace doctors and get directly to the patients. I'm like, no, it's actually when we are sick, we are in such a vulnerable position. We want to delegate this. We want, we want people to take care of us. I was like, I want to go to the doctors. He tells me what's wrong with me and tells me what I should do to feel better again. And we never, as a patient, we never wanted to get rid of, of, of our doctors. We just want to have a better experience with them. We want them actually to give us more time. We want, we want, we want them to, to give us the feeling that they care, that they, but we never, and, and this is, and to me, it was what I, what I heavily criticized around patient centricity. And I know it's provo- uh, it's like some people see it as provocative when I say patient centricity is, is the wrong path. It's more for noise and distraction from what we should care about. We should actually offer physicians a better experience to enable them to have more time for patients. And, um, yeah, and I think that's the leverage we have that many, many oncologists in the space, they knew me as someone who always cared a lot. And I think if you truly, if you have been to clinics, which I have been a lot, if you talk to them, like literally I would go there and I would like, I still remember my first trip to the clinic and excited about this new technology that now they can work on their iPads and they no longer need paper. And then I have the nurse telling me, honestly, I wish we can go back to paper. And of course I am shocked because how this is innovation. This is the future. And then you understand that before that they had one single folder with all patient data in one place. Now every single patient data needs to be entered in a different web application with different access, you know, email and password. That's a nightmare. And the nurse time, it's like, it's counted based on the patient's visits she received every day. And the time for data entry is not calculated in their, in in like in their 40 hours work week. And we never considered that. And when you see them and how many go to burnout and then they talk to you about how much how hard it is, how overwhelmed they are. And then, you know, it just, I just want to, I just want to upload this ECG to this application. It's not working. And I have to call now the customer support. It was never their job to call the customer support. It's just like, it's, yeah. And there's like having the empathy to understand that the new solutions we offer, most clinic staffs are just horrible experiences. And honestly, with my team, I am li- just, just on Monday, I had this call with them and I'm like, I know we love fancy technology and tech stack. The fancy tech stack is for you. What the user see is the user interface. I don't care. Today, the priority will be to work on improving the user interface. I don't want any of our users, especially at the clinic, 
I, I, I like I am more tolerant at the pharma side than at the clinic side because those people spend the whole day and they're like just like you know how how their work they look like. It's like there's zero tolerance for me to offer them a bad experience. So it has always been what, what is the value I can offer clinics so and make their life easier. And I think and having the patience that so I, I think we are. Oh, we are in a rush. And what I admire a lot about Facebook or Google is like build a technology that makes the non-paying user's life great. Can you imagine this dedication? And this dedication, we don't have it today. I want to build a great software for those who pays me at the detriment of the, the end users that mm. don't pay for, for the usage. While in clinical research, of course, pharmaceutical companies are the, the ones who, the, the payers, but your end users are not the procurement center. And they, and, and, and the problem also, they, they never use your software. They don't, they don't know how horrible it is. All they see is someone at the clinic side is, having a hard time using it, but they, I mean, they don't care because we already paid the annual subscription. Now everyone has to deal with it. And I've got to change the vendor. Yeah. I think, um, I, I, it's very obvious and it's very clear that what you bring to this is your, your understanding of everybody involved. I think that you're right. That obsession about the user friendliness of it to the people who matter is important and it's defining the people that matter isn't it because there's the as you say there's the paying customer but then there's the user and it's it's lives or dies on whether the users use it and whether they use it correctly as well which is another reason that the interface needs to be excellent um and so i think it's it's been it's been fascinating talking to you because obviously i've seen your content on linkedin and and you come across as passionate on LinkedIn. It's it's ten times that when uh, when you, when you're at the end of a microphone, which is awesome. It's it's really Thank inspiring. You. But I think it's also comforting to know that there's people like yourself that not only have the passion, because because in some way you know when people have their awakening, be that in a pharma company or be that anywhere or politically or whatever, you can have this awakening and you can get mad at the system. That's easy. I think that's easy to do. I think that's yes. relatively common for people to to rise up against the machine at some point and be angry about something and turn that into a passion. I think that's that's relatively common. But then to have the, I suppose, maturity slash wisdom to then do the learning of what is practically possible to change this, that is special. And I think that's what I'm hearing from you, which is that you've got that wisdom and understanding of all these different sides of this. And you can, you have a vision for how this might practically work. And it's not just about building a tech platform. It's about building it in the right way for the right people and having a consistent understanding of how those people use it and the feedback loops and to constantly iterate and to constantly make it better. Because otherwise you can plot the way through with some incentives um, on paper, logically, but then practically in real world is again, very different. And it seems like you're very connected into all of that, which is, which is awesome. Um, But yeah, Zena, it's been, it's been a pleasure. And to learn about Yendu and what you're doing, like, I think it's great. As I say, it looks great. It's going to look even better in a couple of weeks by the sounds of things. But I think the real value here is, it's where this is where this sits in the grand scheme of things and and the company that you're building being more than just the product the understanding that you have being so much more of the value of how this is going to actually work practically so i think it's i think it's an incredible idea and if we can go some way to reducing that billion to 300 million reducing the 12 years to seven years halving the innovation cycle all these things that you've mentioned and then let's hope it gives those R&D departments the, uh, or, or gives whoever's over that R&D budget the license 
to then not only back the drugs with the highest probability of approval, but back the job, the back the drugs, excuse me, with but the, you know, uh, the you, highest probability of you know, If it costs only 300 million, now you have VCs backing biotech companies and yeah. in Series B, Series C, you can actually run your own clinical trial. Yeah. And I, and you know, just like, it's not only, it's not only that we speed up 2x by shortening, the, by halfening the timeline, you expand the pool of players. Mm. And, and, and that's where you get your 100x. That's actually mm. where I, like, I always, like, when I tell my team, let's build this and then it's game time. Nice. Well, Zina, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. If people want to learn more about Yendu or they want to learn more about you, uh, or to get in touch, what's the best way for them to learn more or get in touch with you? Uh, if they want to get in touch with me over LinkedIn, Zina Sarif, uh, just PM me and, uh, I am responsive. Sometimes it takes a few days, but, uh, <laughs> I promise I will get back to you. And if you want to learn more about Yendu, yes, you can just go to yendu.io and, um, request access on, or just book a meeting and then we can talk about Yendu more. Amazing. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.